Uh, hey, uh, good morning again. Uh, my name is Chandler. As Tony uh, told you guys earlier, uh, I'm the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at Carson Newman. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool to be here this morning. Uh, so some of y'all may or may not know, um, but Providence and REF have been great friends over the years, um, including the biggest way of until, until this year when we finally were allowed to meet on campus. Uh, we, had, we had a large group here on Monday night. So uh, you may or may not have known, um, but over the last year and a half, you guys have hosted a group of college students to come together and get to know each other, to hear the gospel, to grow together um, in, in this very room. And so it's pretty cool to be here with you all on a Sunday um, and, to, and to bring God's word to you. Um, I also want to introduce our intern, Mary Ellen. She's sitting right over here. Uh, she's, in her, she's in her first year with us. She just graduated from, uh, from LSU and moved up here to, uh, to work with, with REF, to work with me, and she's already been... Uh, wonderful. So we're really glad uh, to have her. And um, it's and we've talked we've talked a little bit. You've heard RUF the name this morning several times, and a lot of you are probably like, "What in the world is that?" So I'm going to give you the little spill that I give our students uh, before I preach every week. Um, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and we're a community of people learning to love God and love Carson Newman together. And we, what we mean when we say that is um, we're trying to build community. Uh, college is weird. Um, Jefferson City is kind of weird. We all love it, but it's, it's kind of a weird place. And so what we're trying to do is connect students to other students uh, for them to be friends and to have a home away from home. And y'all are helping out with that with your uh, Adopt-A-Student program. And I uh, would encourage you to look into that if you haven't already. Uh, we say that we're learning to love God, that we don't, uh, even though Carson Newman is a Christian school, we make no assumptions that people who come are believers. And so uh, we know that many will be, and that they'll be looking for places to grow uh, and uh, to grow in their faith, to learn more, to go deeper. And there'll be a lot of students who have no interest in spiritual things at all. And we want to be a safe place for those who want to grow in their faith. We want to be a safe place for those who are asking questions, who maybe don't have any faith and are uh, beginning to explore it for the first time. We want to be a safe place for that. We say that we're learning to love Carson Newman, that we want to pour into the campus and engage uh, our classmates, our, uh, the faculty, the staff, um, the churches in the area, and these kinds of things. And again, that we bring it back together, uh, that we are doing it together. So that's a little bit about who we are. Um, and we have a large group Bible study uh, every Monday night at 8 o'clock. We're going to be meeting in the MSAC lounge. And uh, you guys are always welcome. If you want to just come drop in in the back and see who we are, what we do, I uh, would love to invite you to come in to do that um, and also to meet and engage with our students. Some of y'all have already done that, and you've done a really good job of it, and we're very thankful. So that's a little bit about who we are, um, what we're doing, and, uh, and again, it's just really good to be with y'all this morning. Our, um, our scripture reading comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. So hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. 
For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us, that we can read it and understand it. Um, and Lord, I pray that as we uh, spend some time um, thinking about what you've said to us here, uh, that you would speak through me clearly. Lord, would you... Uh, this morning, please strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're, we're going through Romans um, in, in large group um, this, uh, this semester. And there's a couple questions of, of why. I always love to start with the why. Why are we doing this? And, it, and hopefully I'll have a more compelling reason of just like, well, I mean, it was, I was bored and it was interesting to me, so this is what we're doing. Hopefully. And actually have reasons other than that. The first reason is that when you... When you look throughout the history of the church, Romans is maybe the book that uh, church fathers through all generations have, have cited as the thing that kind of made Christianity click, made it make sense. Uh, St. Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, all from very different traditions of the church, and yet they all agreed that this doctrine laid out in the book of Romans, this idea of justification by faith alone, was the very thing that Christianity rose and fell on. And my guess is if several of these uh, giants of the faith who we look to as, uh, in a lot of ways as inspiration for great theological thought or personal holiness or whatever, if they are saying that Romans impacted them, how many countless others of people's names that we don't know have been impacted and have been changed by this book. But the other reason that we're doing it is, um, is that life is, life is exhausting. Um, it's very, very tiring. We, uh, we just finished, or theoretically just finished, Welcome Week uh, at Carson Newman, which is, a, which is a great time of basically going 24-7 for longer than a week. Um, so not exactly seven days. It's a great time, but it's, but it's tiring, and, and you can already start to see uh, students wearing down, um, students already feeling the fatigue of just a busy college schedule, and, and, and kind of the, the dirty little secret that we know like after college is that it doesn't really ever slow down, <laughs> um, that you start to worry about things like jobs and like making money and having families and these other kinds of things, and life gets exhausting. And even the strongest Christians that we know can wear down under these circumstances. And that's not completely different than the people that Paul was writing the book of Rome, the letter to the Romans to, the Romans. Uh, they were living in a world that was very difficult to understand. They were facing persecution. Uh, they were facing uh, poverty and misunderstanding and all, all these different kinds of things. And, and, and of course, they're starting to ask questions. Is it worth it? Is this gospel, is this good news of Jesus Christ, is it worth following? Is it worth it if I'm going to be persecuted? 
Is it worth it if I'm called to die to myself and to my own dreams and my own passions when other things start to look like so much more fun or maybe they're just easier? And in the book of Romans, Paul is answering that question emphatically, yeah, it's worth it. And so this is where we begin this morning. And it's this question, Paul talks a lot about it, uh, what is the gospel? And uh, if you are the kind of person that likes to uh, take notes and follow along, I'm going to sum the sermon up for you in one sentence that are also going to be my three points because that's why you go to seminary to learn how to say anything in three points. Um, the gospel is the good news of God about an event that we are called to not be ashamed of. So three points, one sentence, there you go. The gospel is the good news of God. And we've, uh, I'm, I'm calling this whole series uh, good news for people who love bad news, in part because that was a cool album when I was in college, like 20 years ago, um, but also because we love bad news. We are people who love bad news. Our whole world is steeped in bad news. Um, when you get on social media, whatever your preferred uh, poison of choice there is, um, and I kind of have a reputation as like the old man yelling at the cloud of like, social media is bad, and it's because it is. But um, when you get on, say, Instagram, which is, which is my poison of choice, you get hooked by the things that make you angry. In fact, the people who have designed these apps and these platforms, they do that on purpose because they know that if you, uh, if you get on there and you read something you disagree with or you see, see somebody saying something that you don't like or whatever, you're going to go deeper into that, right? If you see like somebody's dog, you're like, oh, that's cute. And then you just go to the thing that makes you angry. That's how, that's how it works. That's how they keep you hooked. The way that we get our news is the same way, that you turn on whatever your particular persuasion is, you turn on your channel, and your guys are good and their guys are bad, and you turn off the news and you're furious. You're just angry all the time. Or if you go into any, uh, any bookstore, the best sellers are almost always going to be self-help books. Like, here's how to improve your life. Here's how to be better. And that's maybe the worst news of all, because what it says is that basically fixing your life is up to you. That it's your work, and you need to try to do it. And I think what this does is it produces a bunch of anxious and depressed people because we live in a world that is designed to keep us anxious and depressed. But Paul is writing to say that he has good news, and it's not just good news. Paul's writing, he has good news from God, that this is the gospel of God. And this word, the gospel, we love the word gospel. The go like gospel is an amazing marketing strategy. You can put gospel in front of anything and immediately sell like 50,000 books, right? Like gospel-centered dieting, uh, gospel-centered video gaming, gospel-centered basketball, I don't know. Like just put it in front of anything, put it in a bookstore, and you're going to sell a bunch of copies. It's a great marketing strategy. But what does this word mean? And it literally means that it's good news. In verse 1, Paul says he's called to be an apostle of the gospel of God. Tim Keller says this. He says, the gospel is an announcement. It is a declaration. The gospel is not advice to be followed, but it is the good news about what has been done. Think about that. Reflect on that for a second. But then Paul also says that this was not 
his idea, this was God's idea, that God promised this beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh. And I, I love this because what Paul is saying here is that this gospel, this was the plan all along. That there was never a time throughout the course of human history that the gospel was not the plan for how God was going to bring his people back to him. And if you look um, in the gospel of Luke, uh, you see where Jesus is walking uh, after his resurrection. He meets up with a couple of his disciples, and they're walking to a place called Emmaus. And his disciples don't recognize him at first, and they, uh, they basically sit down at the end of their walk, and they have a Bible study. Right? Imagine having a Bible study like with Jesus himself, but you don't know it's him until after the fact. Um, but Jesus sits down, and he walks through the scriptures with them, and he talks about how everything in the law and the prophets and the wisdom, it all pointed to him. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And so when you read about David and Moses, and you read about Abraham, and you read about all the prophets, and you uh, try to read through Leviticus, and on like the second day of trying to do it, you quit because it's hard to understand. Now, don't blame me for that. It's all pointing to Christ. That everything we see in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And this is by design. I, I like to, whenever I use... Um, Whenever I use movie illustrations, I like to give spoiler alerts, but this movie, I watched this movie when I was in seventh grade, which was a pretty long time ago. So if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense by now, um, I'm going to assume you just don't want to see it, and I'm going to spoil it. So if you're just super adamant about not having The Sixth Sense ruined for you, just plug your ears, and yeah, just don't listen to this part. But what Paul is saying here is that the gospel, this is a complete paradigm shift. It's like in The Sixth Sense... There's this movie, I don't remember any of the characters' names, but Bruce Willis plays this like child psychologist, psychiatrist guy who, um, who meets up with this kid, Haley jo- played by Haley Joel Osment, who can see dead people. And that's the whole, the, the, it, that was like the iconic thing from the story, I see dead people, right? And it was like, you know. Um, but throughout the whole movie, it's Haley Joel Osment's character interacting with these dead people. They're, they're basically uh, solving murders or understanding like why people went missing or whatever. And, and the, big, um, the big plot twist at the end of the movie Plug your ears if you don't want to get it ruined. But the big plot twist at the end of the movie is that Bruce Willis's character was dead the entire time. I know, right? It's crazy. <laughs> but after, after you get that piece of news, after you realize that, what do you do? You immediately go back and watch the movie again to see if it lines up. That the big reveal changes the way that you watch the rest of the movie. And that's what Paul is saying about the gospel is that when you, when you read this, when you realize that all of human history, everything in the world has been pointing to this moment, then you go back to Genesis 1 and you start to read it again in a different light. That's what this does for us. This is the good news of God. And it's good news because something has happened. And because of that, everything has changed. And Paul builds the entire argument in the book of Romans through, uh, through proposition, right? If this, then this. Like Paul says, if then, a lot throughout the book. And whether we realize this or not, we live our lives propositionally. If these certain things are true, then this is how I'm going to deal with it. Like if I am an Enneagram 8, then I'm going to do this weird mystical thing says I'm going to do. Like 
That's how we live our lives. So I want you to think about this. What's the difference then in good news and good advice? Because a lot of times we get really, really good advice that we try to pass off as the gospel. If you, if you walk over to, to Carson Newman's campus and you ask every student, let's say you pick 100 students, and you ask all 100 students, what, like, what is the gospel? They will probably all give you a completely different answer. I mean, that's kind of okay, um, because, you know, there's a lot of ways to say the same thing, but um, one of the things that I kind of always hear when I talk to students is, like, what is the gospel? And they're like, well, the gospel is love God and love people. That's really good advice, but that's not the gospel. That's telling you to do something. Imagine two different scenarios. Imagine that, uh, put yourself in the shoes of the average uh, college freshman, wherever, wherever you went to school, whatever, um, and you go to like the first, the first big event and this guy stands up and he says, okay, I've got five easy steps to guarantee that you graduate with all A's, no debt, you get a well-paying job immediately after graduation, and you will have a healthy and well-adjusted social life. Everybody's going to sign up for that because we all want to know the easy steps, Right? But then imagine that somebody else stands up, or maybe the same person stands up, and says, actually, I'm going to guarantee you all A's, no debt, a well-paying job, and a, healthy, uh, and a healthy social life. Those sound really similar, right? But one of them is good advice. Here's what you do to do this. And the other is good news. This has already been done for you. And, and, I, and I ask students a lot, how different would your entire college experience be if all of those things were guaranteed to you? How would it change the way that you approach your classes? How would it change the way that you approach your friends or whatever else? Because look, without, without fail, this is my fourth year in this job, and, and every year it works out this way, except for the COVID year, which was weird, so not every year, but I'm inviting you into believing it's every year. Um, but a couple of students will come to like the first couple of large groups and They'll be like, oh, this is great. Like, I love RUF. I love what you're doing. And then they'll just completely fall off the face of the earth. And then, and then a week later, you'll see them, like, at, you know, 8.58 in the morning, like, sprinting across campus, like, running as fast as they can. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And they're just like, oh, I can't stop. I'm too busy. Got to get to this class. And, um, and, then, and then you're kind of like, well, what's, what's really going on? And they just immediately start crying because they feel the insane burden of just the insanity of life. And they break down in tears because they're balls of anxiety and they haven't slept. They realize they haven't slept in a week and they're running on coffee, which is really just a milkshake that's acceptable to drink before 9 a.m. And, and it's insanity. Like that's, that's the life that students are invited to live because they're trying to find those five easy steps, right? If I'm on time for class, like whatever. And of course, of course, like work hard at school. That's not what I'm saying. Don't work hard at school. But imagine if you could replace these things though, with your, own, with your own faith, with your own experience with Jesus, right? Because how many times have you read through a book or uh, looked on Twitter or whatever to try to find the five easy steps to a better prayer life? If I could just discipline myself more, I can just pray better. Right? If, I can just, if I can just know that I like feel closer to God, or how can I, how can I know, like how can I be completely assured of, of my salvation, questions like that. Or imagine somebody telling you, hey, 
Prayer is hard, but you know the Bible tells you that right now Jesus is praying for you. Hey, uh, I know that life is scary, but, but the Bible actually tells you that God never leaves and for, or forsakes his people. Or hey, like, I know you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, but like it kind of like, it doesn't matter what your sin is, like Jesus didn't come down off the cross. Like he wasn't like, I'm going to die for this, but that was too bad, so I'm going to actually get down. Think about that. How would your life be different if you knew and believed those things? And why does our faith so often create the same level of anxiety that the world often does? When, when Jesus actually is calling us to come and lay those things at his feet and rest. It's because we believe that we can do this by good advice. But this is good news about an event. And there's all kinds of news that you can get that doesn't really change your life. And yet Paul, um, one of the things that I, that I have loved about studying, uh, studying Romans is just seeing how terrible Paul is at grammar. Um, is, he's just like run on sentence after run on sentence after run. Like if you just imagine Paul talking about this, like you just imagine him being like, oh, like, he's just like, get, like it's, it's like your friend that you ask them like how things are going and they just like vomit all over you with their words. Hopefully not actual vomit, but, um, and you're like, okay, slow down, take a breath. It's okay. It's okay. Like that's how Paul is writing this. Like Paul is going from, um, anxiety riddled murder man of like killing the church to like, hey, I'm not even going to take a breath because of how good this news is. I'm not even going to use punctuation because who needs punctuation when something this amazing has happened? In verses 4 through 7, Paul's talking about Christ. He lays it out clearly that the subject of the good news is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and indeed God himself in the flesh, died and rose again. And the whole book of Romans is built on this proposition that if that's true, and it is, If that's true, then this is what follows. If it is true that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, then this is the power of God to all who believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes the case that if Christ has not risen, then all of this is pointless. If Jesus did not die, and to quote the great American philosopher Dwight Schrute, as dead as any animal that's ever died, and come back to life, then we're wasting our time this morning. You need to get up and walk out of here and go do something else. But the point is that Jesus rose again from the dead. This is what the good news contains. That if he didn't, Christianity just becomes another system of good advice. And Paul says that if that's all this is, then we among everybody else, above everybody else are to be pitied. But it's not just that Jesus died and rose again. Listen, listen to what Paul uh, says that uh, is the then of the if proposition. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are words that are, that, are, that are huge. Saints, peace from God, peace with God. I think anxiety... I think anxiety uh, feels like it comes from, um, from kind of two different places. That one is the feeling that no matter what you do, you will never be able to control the outcome and that you're never going to be able to do enough to kind of like measure up to whatever it is that you need to measure up to. And that standard is always arbitrary, but it's never enough. Or there's the feeling that the world is against you, that no matter, no matter what happens, no matter what comes next, the universe, and it's like ethereal whatever sense, is like, has you in its crosshairs and is trying to destroy you. 
But Paul says that because Jesus rose again from the dead, you can be a saint, which means set aside, declared holy, declared righteous. You can be those things and that you can have peace with God because Jesus rose again from the dead. And I, I'm assuming that if you're here on a, uh, on a Sunday morning that I don't have to like work super hard to convince you that the resurrection is true. But if you're struggling with that, I'm glad you're here and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. But, I, you know, maybe that's not the crowd this morning. But I do wonder how many of us truly believe what Paul is saying here about us being saints and about us having peace with God. Because, I, I mean, I know in my, own, in my own heart and mind that I struggle with that all the time. How can Paul say, I'm a saint, A, he never met me, and B, he's never spent any time with me. How can he say that about us? Is that where we are? Are we wrestling with the kind of anxiety that, that even feels that, we don't measure up and the world's out to get us. And Paul, Paul knew this about himself. Right? Later on in Romans, uh, Paul talks about how he was trying to, uh, when he was doing the whole like, Pharisee thing, um, he was trying really hard to follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. He's like, if I can just master these ten rules. And I, I always think it's funny because Paul, who we know was like murdering people, um, he was like, yeah, the one commandment that I struggled with was the one about coveting. Missing a big red flag there, Paul, but whatever. Um, but, but, but he talks about how the commandment about coveting drove him to the edge of despair because no matter what he did, no matter how hard he tried, he could not, he could not get that one fixed. But what happened? The more he realized that he couldn't keep this law, the more it drove him to the edge of despair. And here is Paul, a, a, a religious man whose zeal for God could never have been questioned. And then he met the resurrected Jesus. But then Paul tells us that this is news that we are not to be ashamed of. And right, this is the verse that, these are the verses that we, uh, for, for a lot of us, these are some of the verses, the first ones that we ever learned. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul, Paul's setting you up for something he's going to do in this letter a lot, that he kind of anticipates the, the average person's objection to what he's writing. And, and he does it subtly because why, why would he... Why would he mention that he's not ashamed of the gospel unless his own temptation was to be ashamed of the gospel as if our response might be to be ashamed of this? A Scottish preacher that I read said that there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And we tend to think of this call to be not ashamed as like, I don't know, a lot of times like, like personal boldness in the face of opposition or um, uh, Melissa Joan Hart in God's Not Dead 3 where like she goes to Congress and she's like, hey, you guys are taking away our rights. And they're like, oh, we're sorry for taking away your rights. Here are your rights back. And then like the newsboys come out and sing God's Not Dead and they have an invitation or something. I've never seen the movie, but I assume that's how it goes. Um, or think about it like this. When I was in fifth grade, um, I don't know if this is still a thing or not, but I was in this program called Royal Ambassadors at our church, RAs. And, uh, and, our, and our, our teacher, who kind of ended up being just a train wreck of a man in a lot of ways, um, he was obsessed with, with, with boldness. We talked about boldness like all the time. Like we never learned what we were supposed to be bold about, 
just that we were supposed to be bold. Um, and so like we would do like, he'd be like, all right, I want you to like draw a picture of you like witnessing at school or something. And we'd have like, I don't know, it was weird. But he told us, he told us one time, he was like, look, if you ever, if you ever deal with a bully at school, like if somebody's picking on you, uh, you just look at them and you say, hey man, Jesus loves you and so do I. And that's, and I, I, don't, I don't know what that was supposed to do, but I tried it one time, right? This, uh, I'm waiting for uh, my mom to come pick me up from school and I'm standing there and this guy comes up and he, I don't know, he made like a your mama joke or something. She's in fifth grade. That's like, those are the fighting words, right? Like, you know, but uh, he, he made fun of me and I was like, hey man, Jesus loves you and so do I. And he looked me directly in the eyes and took both of his hands and shoved me into a pole and walked away. <laughs> I, I don't think that's the point, but like, it's a funny story. Um, why would we be ashamed though? Why would we hear this news and be ashamed of it? And I think there's three basic reasons that we might be ashamed of the gospel. The first reason is that the, like, this is kind of insulting. If you think about it, because, because, Paul is telling us several things here, and I'm sort of, I'm not dreading, but like, I'm kind of nervous about large group tomorrow night, because it's going to be all like, oh, the wrath of God, and like, specific sins, and like, hey, college students, welcome, glad you came back, we'll see you never, but um, the gospel tells us that we don't deserve this news, and that flies in the face of those of us that believe that we're basically good people, that we just need uh, we need Jesus to go from, like, good people who are a little, a little messy, you know, like, I love Jesus, but I cuss sometimes. It's going to, like, help us, like, cuss a little bit less, you know. Just good people who need to make things a little better. It's insulting because the gospel tells us that actually somebody had to die in your place. That the things that you've done in your life, and we're really good at justifying our actions, but the things that you've done in your life actually deserve death. The gospel tells us that we can't do it. Uh, one of my seminary professors always joked that the, the sixth sola of the Reformation was, uh, was sola bootstrappa, which basically meant that you can, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can figure it out on your own. And the gospel tells us we can't do that. It's also insulting because the gospel calls us to be associated with those people. Right? We all have those people. And Paul writes about it here. He talks about that this is for the Greeks and the barbarians. This is for the Jews and the Gentiles. And these are two sets of people that absolutely hated each other. Right? These are the two sets of, uh, two, two different sets of, two sets of two people. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, who, they hated each other. And, and if you read through, um, take, take Hebrews 11, for example. You read through the Hall of Faith. I had a t-shirt with the Hall of Faith on it when I was in like, middle, uh, no, like elementary school. And it was like all these cartoons. And it's like, oh, these are great. These are great people in the Bible. And you start to read about them, and they're all terrible. Every single one of them is awful. Like, we love Noah, right? Because Noah built the ark and saved all the animals and then got off the ark and passed out naked in front of his whole family, right? We love, uh, we love Abraham, but multiple times he lied about his wife being his sister, and took another, uh, took another woman because he didn't trust the promises of God, right? What about Jacob? Jacob's name means liar, deceiver. I mean, the writer of Hebrews lists off the judges. Have you ever read Judges? Like, are those the people you want to be associated with? No, of course not. In Hebrews 11, 
he, the writer writes about Rahab the prostitute. There's no other person in the Bible named Rahab. You don't have to add that modifier there. And yet, this is what we're told. These are who we're told that we associate with. It's not because of our goodness. It is not because of our righteousness. It's not because they had it together or we have it together. It is solely because Christ saved sinners. That's it. And that's insulting. The gospel is hard to believe. It's another reason we might be ashamed. A few years ago at the first church I served in, we, um, we spent some time uh, preaching through the book of Jonah. And uh, our assistant pastor was at a, I think he was like at a, at a uh, body shop getting his car fixed. And he was talking to a guy uh, there and I was inviting him to our church. And he was like, man, he's like, I'm not coming to listen to you preach on Jonah. Like, I, like y'all believe, like, y'all believe, because y'all is how we talk in the South. Um, this is in Mississippi. Y'all believe that a man lived in the belly of a fish for three days. And that was, that was like the, the insurmountable objection to Christianity. I'm like, bro, have you read the New Testament? Like, we believe somebody died and came back to life. And it's easy for us to fall back on just blaming the ancients, right? Like, they were, they were just stupid. They didn't understand that people rose again from the dead. And I don't have time, we don't have time to go into, like, the full, the full apologetic. But suffice to say for this morning, they, they didn't believe that because if they did believe that people rose from the, all, the dead all the time, they wouldn't have written this book about it and a lot of them died for it. But that's a, another conversation for later. But this is the thing, like Christianity is hard to believe. You really believe in miracles? You really believe that a man could have walked on water? You really believe that he could have fed, you know, 500, 5,000 plus people with a couple fish and some, some bread loaves? Like, it's kind of hard to believe, but it's true. And the other reason that I think we might be tempted to be ashamed is that the gospel is a call to suffer. Tim Keller says that the gospel tells us that our salvation was accomplished by Jesus' suffering and serving, not conquering and destroying, and that following him means to suffer and serve with him. This offends people who want salvation to be an easy life. It also offends people who want their lives to be safe and comfortable. And I think Paul put this in there because he knows these are heavy temptations. And if you're here this morning and you're struggling with doubt or you're struggling with um, really just any, with being ashamed or whatever. Like, it's, this doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It doesn't mean your faith is weak. It just means you're paying attention. But I think that, I think that at the end of the day, Paul's looking at this and he's like, I'm not ashamed. And he says, and why not? Why is he not ashamed? He says, because this is the power of God. That God has chosen the foolish to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak to lead the strong. That Paul is saying that the gospel is not merely a concept or a philosophy. In the gospel, words and power come together. The message of the gospel is what God has done and will do for us. Paul says that the gospel is therefore a power. He doesn't say that it brings power or has power, but that it actually is power. And that it saves and reconciles us to God, and it guarantees a place in the guarantees us a place in the kingdom of God forever. And again, Paul's Paul's life is the example here. That that he was literally trying to stop the church. He was trying to root out the early Christian believers and kill them all. And now he's preaching the good news to the Gentiles, who the Jews hated above everybody else. Paul's realized this power, and he's realized because Christ has died, 
Christ has risen again, that this is the power for him to live and to make sense of his life. And it is that to everyone who believes. And this is kind of what gets unpacked through the rest of Romans. We don't have uh, just a ton of time um, to do that this morning. But it's this idea of justification by faith. Frederick Bruner, said, he asked, do we really believe that this greatest of divine gifts, uh, do we really receive this greatest of divine gifts by the simplest of all human responses? Indeed, and this is what makes the good news of Christ the world's most gracious news ever. You see, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes that the Jews demanded great signs. They wanted to see miracles and signs and wonders and all kinds of uh, amazing things that would make them believe. The Greeks desired wisdom. They looked for a deeper knowledge and a deeper understanding of the world and how it worked. But Paul proclaims a crucified Messiah. And that was such an absurd idea, except for the fact that it's true. Paul flushes out this phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. But for our purposes this morning, living by faith means seeing everything in life through the lens of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we don't see it through that, then we're just trying to follow good advice. We're trying to do it on our own. So I'll wrap up with this. Uh, on January the 18th, 2010, uh, a very average-looking man, a uh, very average, just kind of in his life man named Bill Fong, uh, showed up to his league bowling night in Plano, Texas. Um, he, uh, he goes through his warm-ups. He's kind of getting ready to, to get out there and to bowl and to do his thing. And uh, he kind of, he says he didn't really feel like it was a special night, didn't really feel like anything big was going to happen. And yet, uh, for the first game, he gets up there and he bowls a 300. He bowls a perfect game, 12 straight strikes. And for someone like me, who knows next to nothing about bowling, and if I bowl triple digits, if I just get to 100, I'm feeling really good about myself. Um, a 300 is not the peak achievement in bowling. The peak achievement in bowling is actually bowling three 300s in a row. Um, 300s are fairly common. Somebody might show up to your, your local alley and do it. Um, but I think only 39 times in history has someone ever bowled a 900. 39 times. So Bill Fong walks up to the thing, the, I don't know what it's called, um, for the start of the second game, and he bowls another strike. He's got 13 in a row, and then he hits 14, and then 15, and then 16. Uh, when, they, when, they interviewed about, when they interviewed him about this night, he said, it, he said it felt like Moses was parting the Red Sea. I would move my hands, and the pins would get out of the way. And he bowled two straight 300s, 24 straight strikes. He starts the third game, and somewhere in the midst of the third game, he says he starts to feel drunk. See, so he wasn't drinking that night, but he started to feel drunk. And he, 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 he threw 25, 26, 27. Finally, on the 33rd frame, or the, the 33rd frame in a row, he made a mistake. But, as I guess fate would have it, he still ended up with a strike. Because you know how you, know, you bowl, like weird things happen when you bowl. Anyway, so he finally gets up for the last frame. He throws 35 straight strikes. There's video of this, like everybody in the bowling alley is losing their minds. They're about to see history for, I guess, the 40th time ever. They are going insane. So Bill Fong walks up to the, to the line, and he bowls, throws the ball. He knocks down nine pins 
And the tenth one starts to do that thing, you know, where it wobbles. And like you're, it's kind of like when you're playing Nintendo when you're a kid, thinking you can make the thing. And it, and it, and it kind of like wobbles and it doesn't fall over. And he ends up, he, he finishes the night with an, with an 899. He says that later that night he went home. He felt, he felt very sick and he started throwing up. He realized he was vomiting blood. And so he knew enough about the situation to call the hospital. They sent an ambulance and he found out that he was having a stroke. And that it's likely that the stroke began somewhere in the middle of the third game. So he, he did this whole thing like while having a literal stroke. He almost died, almost killed himself in his quest for perfection. And years later, after this event, Bill Fong says that he still believes that bowling the 900 would, is, would have made his life perfect. But bowling the 899 gives him this intense feeling of shame and failure. Like, one of the greatest sporting achievements ever, I guess. And he feels like this huge failure. Why do, we, why do I close with that? Why do I tell you that story? Because that's the life that we're trying to live. You know, we, we know the right answers. We're at church on Sunday morning. We know everything about, oh, like, salvation by grace alone, whatever, you know. Like, like we, we know those answers. But we figure out what our vision of the good life is, and then we throw ourselves at it to the point that we will literally drive ourselves to, uh, to, to the stress and the tension of pursuing perfection crushing us. That because we have this vision for how our lives should go, we end up using people, we end up angry, we end up bitter, and maybe we even end up walking away from faith completely. Because everything we're doing is us striving and longing and digging harder for perfection. But what if there was something else? What if there was something that didn't require you to be perfect because someone else stood in that gap and stood in that gap and was perfect for you? What if what if there was a way to not just have the approval of your peers or your professors, or actually to not have that approval at all? or your bosses, or your families, or whatever, but to have the approval of the very God who made you, who formed you in your mother's womb, who can number the hairs on your head, and how would that change the way that you live the rest of your life? And that's what Paul is so excited about here. And we think about this idea of the gospel, we think about the great mystery of our faith that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. If we really believe that, if we really stood in awe of this great news, what, what would be different? How would our lives change? I want you to think about that. I want you to explore that. I want you to consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. God, thanks that you've given it to us that we uh, haven't can understand it. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have this promise, that we have this real moment in history and time and in space where Jesus came and he became a man that he lived the life that you have called and required us to live and yet he died the death that we deserve and so because of that we can have peace with you Lord bless this to our hearing to our understanding Lord help us to to maybe even maybe even look at this in new eyes for the first time in Jesus name amen